Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up, the, up on the mountain by himself to pray. When, the, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when, he got, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The word of the Lord. As, a, as an elementary school kid, one of the things that we knew was that when somebody was running for class president or you know, student government spots, they had to start with the, the right platform. And the platform always involved candy machines and longer recess. Once a candidate started there, we would start listening to them about whether we were going to vote for them. Very often, political candidates don't really grow up much from that as they become adults. There are some more famous stories of more bizarre politicians who did that sort of a thing. There was a gentleman who ran multiple times for office in Paris in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. His name was Ferdinand Lopp. And his promise, his platform involved eliminating poverty after 10 p.m. Sounds good. And to move Paris, relocate Paris to the countryside so the city residents could have country air. I like it. The, in the 60s, a guy rose up in England and ran multiple times again. His name was Lord Such, or at least that's what he went by. Lord Such also was known as Screaming Lord Such. And he saw that there was an overproduction of butter happening in Europe and England, and he said, we're going to take that overproduction of butter and turn it into ski slopes and give free heated toilet seats to all the elder, elderly. It's like this very generous guy. Lord Such never won. And the Americans, Americans have not, not, not to be outdone ever, have a guy, we have a guy from the 70s and 80s 
who renamed himself, legally renamed himself Vermin Supreme. And his platform involved a, f- a bus ticket for all sick people to go to Canada, a free pony for everybody, and the legalization of human meat. Yeah, I like the uh, British guy more, the heated toilet seats on ski slopes of butter. We're always looking for a political solution to life problems, to the world around us. It's not just us, throughout history. Every culture is always looking to the next thing to save us. And in our culture over the past couple of decades, we have constantly turned to the next election, right? You will hear it again and again in whatever circles you listen to, whatever websites you visit, anything tied to politics, you will hear in your own echo chamber the next election. Everything matters. Everything hangs on it. It's the most important election ever. It decides the fate of our nation, of us as human beings. And it's usually a combination of fear and then putting out there some version of hope tied to that, right? It's this issue is the ultimate issue. If we lose this issue, it's all done. That side will destroy everything. But if the right side is elected, there is a hope and a future. Now look, I think there's an incredibly powerful role for government that is, that is a calling and is a gifting to every nation There's political roles of leaders and government to establish. I mean, even those of you who just know a little bit about the work of of Human Trafficking Institute or International Justice Mission, the role of rule of law, that billions of people live without rule of law because there's political instability. And in the vacuum of political stability and rule of law, the powerful prey on the weak. We need rule of law. We need government and people who invest in that. But every culture seems to deify politics. We messiahify the king or the congress or the courts. They will make things right. They will save us. This is actually what the crowds wanted. In Matthew 14, when Jesus gave them bread in the wilderness, But Jesus, not in this instant, declares through his life and death, I am not that sort of king. The story is a familiar one for anybody who's bounced around churches, but even if you haven't, these are two of the most familiar stories in Christianity, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. They recur in most of the Gospels. All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000 almost verbatim. And basically the story goes like this. Jesus has just found out that his cousin and close friend John the Baptist has been executed and he wants to get away with his good friends to a desolate place, a wilderness area, in order to be with them, to be with God the Father and to, to grieve. But as they go on the boat across the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place, the crowds see them going and go around on foot and meet them there. And throughout the course of the day, there are more and more people pouring out into this desolate wilderness place. And Jesus is healing. And he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, which he did everywhere he went. And it gets to the end of the day. And the disciples say, hey, there's no food here. Send them to the villages. Send them home. And Jesus says, of course, you give them something to eat. And they say, all we have is five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes the bread. He breaks it. 
gives thanks, gives it to the disciples, said, you feed them. And they give out the food. And everyone ate and was satisfied. And there were over 5,000 men besides women and children. And there were 12 basketfuls left over. And then Jesus sends the disciples back to the other side of the lake. He says, go on your own. I'm going to follow you later. And they get in the boat and go to the other side. And these are experienced fishermen. They know how to run a boat. A trip that should have taken two hours ends up taking them all night long. And it's the fourth watch of the night. It's dark. It's 3, 4, 5 a.m. They still haven't made it because the wind and the waves have been beating against them all night long. They're exhausted and they're nearly swamped by these waters of death that they see all around them, and then they see an agent of death or something coming towards them on the water, a ghost, and they cry out, and Jesus is the one walking on the water, says, do not be afraid, ego me, it is I. And Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come out. Smart Peter. And Peter, Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, right, that amazing story and begins walking towards Jesus, but then he sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches down, lifts him up. They get into the boat. He says, you of little faith, didn't you know that I was with you? I, I could, I, what, what were you afraid of? Look at me. And then the disciples say, you are not one of us. <laughs> you are the son of God. Okay, what's going on in those two stories? What's happening in those two stories? They're not accidental. Jesus isn't just like, hey, watch this party trick. What is he doing? Here's the hint. Where else in the Bible, where else in any biblical story, those of you who know him a little bit, do we see people walking on the sea and getting miraculous bread in the desert. Where in any like biblical story with Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner do you see walking on the sea as if it's dry land and bread in the wilderness miraculously? Huh? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see what's going on here? It's the exodus. Jesus is intentionally reenacting all the symbolism and all of the narrative of the Exodus. He's infusing his actions with historical, theological, and prophetic meaning and importance. Stories have meaning, and stories give meaning. You know, a lot of people are into finding their ancestry nowadays, right? And so, like, you, you do the 23andMe, you spit in a cup, you send it away, people come back and say, hey, here's all of your DNA, right? And part of that is because we want to find out where we're from. We want to find out our origins, our background. Who am I? And we think if we can go back, we can find out a little bit more about who we are. My brother-in-law did this, and he was very excited very excited when he found out he was like 0.2% North African. And then later on it got switched and it was actually your 0.2% um, South Asian, so India. And he was very excited about that because he had a lot of friends from India and he was like, hey, look, we're cousins. <laughs> it was like 0.2%. 98% of him was from the British Isles. But the 0.2%, that explained everything. Origin stories are important. And we know this from any myth or narrative or story that we read and like or see and like, right? 
Luke the farmer, Luke the farmer goes and battles evil. Why? Because we find out eventually that Luke is the son of Anakin Skywalker, the son of Darth Vader, and it makes all, oh, now I get it. It makes sense, the way he acts, that Spider-Man was Peter Parker, the scientific nerd, kind of the, his broken family, not with his parents because they've died. It tells something about him. Steve Rogers was a weak, weak, scrawny guy who was always picked on, but he had a sense of justice, a sense of what is right, and a sense of patriotism. And he was going to sign up to go fight the Nazis in World War II, but he was too weak too scrawny. And so as all good stories do, they performed an experiment on him and he became Captain America and that sense of justice and right was born from who he was, his origin. We need to hear the origin story to understand the character. It gives sense and meaning to the character. A lot of us have something that's equivalent to an origin story which is a community narrative. A community narrative are the stories that we as family or friends tell and retell about our shared history that actually strengthens the bonds of family and friends. So in my family, on my dad's side of the story, uh, uh, dad's side of the family, the stories go back to our, his father, my grandfather, and the sacrifices he made. As a 12-year-old, he had to quit school and go to work to care for his five older sisters because his father ran out and he started just working. And later on in life, he took up two jobs, one of which was in a coal mine, and he never complained about the work because he cared about his family. And that sacrifice and care for family has been a story that's been told and retold and shapes the narrative of our self-understanding. I have a group of friends that, that live in kind of a rough same neighborhood, and there are stories that we tell and retell tied to something that happened 10 years ago this week in D.C. What was that? Like eight feet of snow, it was the greatest week that Snowmageddon happened, right? Saturday into Sunday, two feet of snow. Two to three days later, another two feet of snow dumped, and nobody went anywhere. Nobody went to work. Everyone came out of their houses. And I remember the kids just playing. We were tossing kids in the snow, sledding one night as the snow was coming down with kids, with parents in the middle of the street, sledding and throwing snowballs at each other, trying to tag just these wonderful days and nights. And these images are actually my screensaver to this day. Not just because I love snow, but because it ties stories and memories of friends. These are my community narrative, okay? The things that I go back to again and again that shape who I am in relation to others. Exodus. Exodus is Israel's origin story and community narrative. It is the main story for understanding Israel, Jewishness in that first century, what Jesus is doing, because it was the main story of Israel's national identity. All of their beliefs and hopes were actually found in that story and all that it pointed to. You cannot overestimate the role of Exodus in the self-understanding and belief system and hopes of Israel. And what's the Exodus story? Just to kind of re-quickly go over it, right? The Exodus story is Israel, the people of God, so to speak, were in bondage in slavery in Egypt, and God delivers them through the chosen prophet Moses. He delivers them out of Egypt 
parting the Red Sea so that they can be delivered out and the death instead can fall, judgment can fall on Egypt. Judgment falls on Egypt, the enemies of God. And God leads Israel through the wilderness in which he gives them the law, establishing a covenant with them, saying, you are my people. And they build a tabernacle so he can dwell with them and he leads them with them into the promised land. The story of Exodus is the birth of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. So, okay, some of you just hang with me here. This is Bible nerd stuff. Some of you are like, all right, why is he telling us all this? It is this, the Exodus story cannot be overstated for the importance of understanding Old and New Testament. So hang with me here because Israel told and retold that Exodus narrative again and again and again. At the feasts of Tabernacles and Passover, the main feast of Yom Kippur, it was actually the retelling of the Exodus stuff. In the synagogue on a Saturday, on a Sabbath, when they gathered, they would read the Old Testament, the, the law, the stuff that God gave during the Exodus. And often the prophets and the Psalms were retelling the Exodus story. In Nehemiah, which we read, which is 100 years after they are in exile and they return back to Israel, they're reestablishing their covenant. They're saying, okay, let's be a people again. And what do they do? They retell publicly the Exodus narrative, which we just had read. It was basically like them renewing their vows. They're you know, 20 years, 50 years in, you do the marriage renewal. That's what they're doing. And when they do so, they retell the Exodus story. The prophets, most of the prophets, point to the Exodus narrative. The hope of the prophets is that God will one day re-Exodus us. So Israel became a nation, right, after the Exodus. They go in, King David, King Solomon, but then they start turning to pagan gods, following other ways, uh, being unjust to the poor and the weak. And God gives them over to foreign enemies. The Babylonians come in and conquer them. The temple is destroyed. And Israel is taken away into exile, basically slavery again. During this time and the time afterwards, the prophecies of the prophets like Isaiah and Zephaniah and Malachi was that God would one day come and re-deliver us. He will return us from exile like he brought us out of Egypt. God will act to deliver us He will bring his people out of slavery and exile to Babylon. He will bring judgment on the enemy nations. It doesn't matter who it is, the Babylonians, the Persians, later the Greeks and the Romans. And he will return us to the promised land where he will dwell with us and establish his kingdom forever. And Israel went into exile in 586 BC and a couple of other times they did. And then they returned, like 100 years later, 150 years later, they returned to the land of Israel, but they never returned the way that the prophets thought they were going to. They never saw the full dramatic deliverance from God. They never saw judgment brought on their enemies. They did not see the eternal kingdom, the God dwelling with them. And so by the first century, by the first century, the Jewish political imagination was desperate for a new exodus. The hundred of years, the hundred years before Jesus and after Jesus' birth involved dozens of messianic movements trying to kind of bring in the kingdom of God, overthrow the enemies of God, bring judgment on them, and have God come and set up his shop with them. And do you know what nearly all of the messianic movements did? They went 
gather a group of people in the wilderness, in a desolate place, in order to then eventually go and try and storm Jerusalem and take it by force, overthrowing whoever it was, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, eventually. All messianic movements, nearly all, began in the wilderness. Judas, the Galilean in 6 AD, was opposed to the census and tax that Caesar was imposing because it was an affront to Yahweh and this being the promised land. And so he did what? He gathered a large force in Galilee, which was where Jesus mostly was, which was basically the wilderness, according to the people of Jerusalem. A couple years later, after he was kind of obliterated by the Romans and his army, uh, a guy named Thutis, Yeah, Thutis came and he gathered 400 followers, took them to the other side of the Jordan and said, follow me, I'm going to part the Jordan River. We will walk through on dry land and we will go take Jerusalem and overthrow the Romans. And then in Matthew 14, Jesus goes into the wilderness and gathers 5,000 men. And he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and doing amazing things. And then to top it all off, he brings miraculous bread for all people. And everything he's doing is infused with symbolism. Verse 19 gives us the words that Jesus uses. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks the bread, gives it to his disciples so that all the people can eat, right? What is he doing there? What he's doing is celebrating a Passover Seder. Here they are in the wilderness. He's breaking the bread like he's the father, the patriarch of the family of 5,000 reconstituted Israelites. He's passing it out as you did at a Seder. Of course, not too long after this, the disciples were able to look back and say, oh, these same phrases, words, are exactly what he does at the Last Supper, which was a Passover Seder, where Jesus breaks the bread. He takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples to eat. What he was doing was incredibly provocative, symbolically rich, filled with all sorts of hoped-for narrative. Summing it up, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said this, he, Jesus, gathered around him a group of followers and acted in various symbolic ways which indicated that the great exodus, the real return from exile, was at last on its way. Israel's God would act powerfully in history, and Jesus would lead his people to salvation. So these 5,000 men, that's an army, are gathered in the wilderness, and they're like, this dude heals people, he talks about the kingdom all the time, and now we have manna. Let's make him king. And in John 6, the the retelling, that version's telling of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that the crowds, the people were going to take him by force and make him king. Matthew doesn't record that. He just gave him a little bit of bread. Why are they gonna make him king? Why? Because Exodus. They're longing for him to deliver them and bring judgment on their enemies. So why does everyone get Jesus so wrong? Because they got him wrong here. Jesus was not that sort of king, right? It's because every person, including us, 
bring our own demands and agenda to who we want Jesus to be. They wanted deliverance, judgment, a kingdom that was a real, like, kind of political kingdom. That was their demand, their agenda. And look, Jesus was starting a kingdom movement. Everything he did was highly political and subversive. He was ushering in a world-transforming regime. But it was not the sort of regime that anyone had ever seen. He was rejecting the power and military of Rome, the national and ethnocentric aspirations of Israel. And as a result, no political authority, the, the chief priests, King Herod, the local rabbis, Caesar himself and all of his cronies, no political authority understood what Jesus was doing. And yet all of them rightly saw Jesus as a threat, a threat to their power and position and agenda. Jesus did come to bring a kingdom. But his kingdom was, as we talked about two weeks ago, upside down, right? Okay, so we talk about kingdom here. We've talked about it. The two weeks ago we talked about it, right? Jesus' kingdom being an upside down kingdom. And the reason we're talking about Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of God is because that's what Jesus talked about. That's actually what he talked about more than anything else. Jesus had come to do something. It was the inauguration of a kingdom, a new order, a new regime, but not at all the sort of regime we think of. We want political solutions and saviors. The church has done this throughout the centuries. They've used it in the past to justify the power and wealth, the placing of emperors, subjecting other people. Many of us do it today, assuming that one party or one person is God's chosen. Now look, the kingdom of God has political implications. It's not just about escaping and going up to heaven. It's about what God wants to do on this earth now. But it is definitely not about power and control and wealth and a whole lot more about humility and grace and generosity. The upside-down kingdom involves Jesus transforming the lives of the poor and the outcast and the sinful and the powerless, the most humble. The kingdom that Jesus came to bring is not about power in the same way that most of us think about it. Jesus calls the disciples to do what? To turn the other cheek, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. But how in the world are you going to keep office and power if you do that? You won't. But it was that message and that model that has changed the world and continues to do so. 20 years ago, historian Rodney Stark and more recently, a historian named Tom Holland, who wrote a book called Dominion, noted that every single power every single power in the world has always eventually crumbled beneath the weight of a people who turn the other cheek. K. 
cared for the poor, forgave the sinner, acknowledged their sinfulness, extended grace and generosity and mercy to the weakest and the most helpless. From Rome all the way through, no one could stand. There is a view of power in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus was, after all, the Son of God, right? He, he does bring bread out of nowhere, seemingly. He heals the sick. He walks on water. He casts out demons from the possessed. He even raises the dead. But what Jesus does, according to Philippians 2, is he does not use his divinity for his own good. Philippians 2 says, he did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited for his own good. He had all the power and authority of God Almighty, but he never uses it for himself. That's how power is used in this upside-down kingdom. It's the story of the cross, right? When the people who are crucifying him are mocking him, saying, hey, if you are the Son of God, come down from there, the very breath and heartbeat they have to shout that out is upheld by his authority. They're alive because he lets them live. He does not exploit his power for his own good, but he gives it up, sacrificing it for our deliverance, bearing our judgment to establish God's kingdom. That sort of view of power in his upside-down kingdom has implications for our marriages, how we do friendship, how we approach our career, our school, our politics. You cannot approach marriage if you have the stronger personality and say, oh, let me exploit that for my own good. You surrender that for the good of your spouse and your kids. You surrender your position at work for the good of others. If you're brilliant, great. How do you use that? for God's kingdom and others. Take your power and turn it over. It's an upside down kingdom and it's an inside out kingdom. I love that phrase, all ate and were satisfied, which we read in the story. So they're in a desolate place and everybody's hungry, right? Jesus feeds them with bread and fish and it says all ate and were satisfied and there was 12 basketfuls left over. Everyone, not, not just everyone had a bite, like you're gonna come here, you're not gonna be satisfied after this, okay? Give you a little nib of bread, a little dink of, of some wine, you will not be satisfied. Everyone ate and was satisfied and there was an abundance left over. When we hear that, we say, yes, I want Jesus to satisfy me. But what we mean and what we are looking for is often our own version, our happiness, our success, our winning. And at minimum, we want Jesus to make sure we don't get sick or have problems in life. You know, make my kids happy. See, I'm being selfless. We want a good and easy life, but we constantly choose and want to define it ourselves. And then we build our appetite around that till we are satisfied. But Jesus means something different. As he says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And he's not talking just about our stomachs. In a world of striving 
to make it, pushing so hard to achieve success, success, clamoring to be noticed, we all wanna be noticed and recognized, fear of being forgotten, right? We are hungry for power and wealth, starving for love and approval. And nothing we turn to in this world, even the good things, can satisfy the depth of our need for love and acceptance, the depth of our hunger. Except Jesus, who says, come to me, feed on me, in your hearts by faith, and let me fill you. And you will find peace, contentment, filled up. Jesus wants to satisfy us, to give us life to the full. Not so we can be fat and happy, spiritually speaking, but so we can be free. There's a freedom in the satisfaction that Jesus provides. It's the freedom to not worry about yourself, but to forget yourself and die to self. The freedom to love God and give yourself to him and others. And to spread his upside down kingdom in a world desperately hungry for what he has to offer. Let's pray. God, we have so many needs in this world and so many fears. And many of us need to be working towards the end of fighting those things in this world, fighting for justice and rule of law, stepping into positions of government, campaigning. And yet these things are not the eternal kingdom. You have called us to give up power, to sacrifice ourselves in humility and generosity, to be satisfied by you and nothing else. May we trust in you, our true bread, in whose name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.